0: tuning in to the Believer's Church of Johnson City podcast. We are grateful you've stopped by. Regardless of where you are in your faith journey, we hope today's teaching is both challenging and also encourages you to move closer to Jesus. You can subscribe to the podcast if you want weekly messages, leave a review about your experience, and if you wish to become a giving partner, you can do so by giving online at believerschurch.tv. And of course, we want to encourage you to come see us in person. We're located at 6110 Kingsport Highway in Johnson City, Tennessee. As always, we hope you enjoy today's message. I have to say, Tammy just told me to relax. And the, the strange thing about speaking in public is that it scares most people to death. But when I'm up here, I'm Okay. I think it's everywhere else that I <laughs> that I am in life. Sometimes when 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 the mind can can really bother you, and you know I have to say that as before we get started, and this will lead into what we're going to talk about today. That spiritual warfare is very real, and I um, I've had a lot, the hardest forty eight hours that I've had in in over a year, and then, that's not an exaggeration. I'm looking back to October of of 2019. This is the hardest forty eight hours that I've had in in a year. There have been very on a positive side, the scale looked good this morning because I've not felt like eating. But it, it's been very, very hard. And my my prayer as I go through these things, because this is not my first rodeo with these things, is though he slay me, I will serve him. And I will continue, I will not stop until I breathe my last breath. I know what Jesus has done in my heart. I know what Jesus has done in my life and every outcome, regardless of what happens, that's what I'm about. I know the alternative. I've been there. All right. Now, uh, the Christian author and therapist Dan Allender and I don't know how many times I've read this quote, especially yesterday. I love this and it's going to lead us into this this series that we're starting today. The desert, and we can't really seem to get out of the desert for some reason. Like like we've been in this in the wilderness series for three weeks in which we were talking about Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. Now we're going to be for 10 weeks with the Israelites for 40 years. Listen at this. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or we die. I'm going to say that one more time. The desert shatters the soul's arrogant and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, some of you know the desert, we trust God or we die. We're spending the next 10 weeks until the Advent season or the season of Christmas. Yes, that's how long we're going to be in Exodus. Until the Advent season, uh, shortly before Christmas, uh, going through the desert in a series that I've entitled... Uh, that I've titled Out of Egypt. I'm very excited about the work that God is going to do through this body of believers as we study Moses and the Israelites. I do have to say this also today, this series is unlike anything that I've ever done before, meaning it could be horrible or it could be wonderful. And this is what I mean by the, by this. My dad and I were having a conversation when he sees this diagram on my wall in the office not long ago, which has since been erased, but when he looked at that, he said, so is this, this, we're talking about this Exodus series, and he asked how I generally put a series together. I generally put a series together with the end in mind, all right, so what is it that I want our people, what is it that I want? Uh, wanted my, my former church, if I was putting a series together, what was it that I wanted them to get out of it at the end of the day, this series, for a very type A person, is the most spontaneous thing that I've ever done in my life, all right? Maybe not in my entire life, but but in ministry, certainly, and definitely. I don't even know exactly where we're going to finish, all right? And I've, I've handled each message almost like an individual message, but as I get to the conclusion of putting all these sermons together, I'm recognizing this theme and this pattern— that the Holy Spirit is just woven into the whole thing while I'm just kind of hanging out and trying to write a sermon. All right, so today what we're doing, I'm just just letting you know that. Today we're opening this series, and it's important that we lay some groundwork for the journey that we're going to be on uh, throughout the next 10 weeks. All right? So this is going to be very much of an informational day. Sometimes informational days aren't very fun, but they're absolutely necessary. I promise there's going to be some good stuff in this. We are not, I do know this, we are not covering the entire book of Exodus. This series has shaped into something that's more about the Exodus or Shemot out of Egypt opposed to the entire book when you get into the laws and the tabernacle and all that other important stuff, all right? So, uh, we are probably going to conclude when the Israelites reach Mount Sinai. If you're not familiar with that, think Ten Commandments, all right? That's probably around as far as we are going to go in ten weeks. There will be a reading plan for this series that we are going to do through about the first half of the book of Exodus. So, if you've been following on social media... You know that your homework and your responsibility throughout the week was to read a very short chapter, and it was Exodus 1, if you happen to notice that. Raise your hand if you've read Exodus 1 in the last week. Good, that's a, that's a pretty good number. That's probably 10 to 15%. I was shooting for two, so that's wonderful, all right? Now, we are going to, now that you know this, be looking this evening or tomorrow, because we'll have the reading for next week as well. All right, so a bit about the Exodus. All right, Exodus is the second book of the Torah. Uh, the other books are Genesis, then you have Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call this the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law of the Old Testament. Exodus means uh, Shemot, or that's what it is in Hebrew. It means names. Names is one of the early words in the chapter. We usually take it from the Greek, translated into English, Exodus, which means way out. All right, so that makes a little bit more sense to us. Pathway out or or way out is actually what this is considered. Um, It could be considered God's third attempt at creating a moral world, the first being the creation account and the second being life after the flood. Exodus is a salvation history. All right, it's about God's saving actions toward his chosen people Israel, which is eventually, I was having a conversation with Wes before the service about all of the parallels between Exodus and the cross and the story of Jesus, all right? So we, as we see the Exodus as a way out, it's also a way out for sinners as we look at slavery and oppression and all of those issues that we need as sinners. The heart of Exodus is the covenant at Mount Sinai, all right, so if we look at the most important element, it's right there. And we are probably going to stop uh, prior to the introduction of this law that we get at Mount Sinai. All right, and then, of course, there is this fulfillment of promise. This fulfillment of promise is absolutely central to what we're going to be looking at. If you've read Genesis, you know about this promise. And this is the promise. God is revealing his faithfulness to the original patriarch, Abraham. Abraham. All right, We see this in Genesis, which means origin or beginning. All right, So you've heard me constantly talk about, even since the first series that I shared with you guys, I think my big thing in my life as a Christian, especially at this stage right now, that I focus on more than anything, is the promises of God. I really place a lot of emphasis on that because when we go through spiritual warfare, when we go through dark days, when we go through difficulties, I am telling you, that those promises are the only thing that we have to cling to. And we know that if God was faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and eventually, as we will see, Moses, that we can take it to the bank every single time. So that's what I rest upon. That's where I find my my peace. All right, so the Exodus is essentially about one thing. If we want to narrow it down just to one thing, this is what the Exodus is actually about. God is keeping a promise to Abraham, all right? You can stop it right there. Why does the exodus exist? Why is there this mass movement out of Egypt? It's because God is keeping a promise to the original patriarch, Abraham. This is what is said in uh, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, that was his name at the time, Know this for certain. Don't speculate on this as a possibility. Don't consider this if things get really hard. Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens or foreigners in a land that is not theirs. They shall be slaves there. And they shall be oppressed for 400 years. All right? This is 500 years before Moses. All right? You can have some confidence in this God. He is predicting something that is 500 years into the future. Let's skip ahead to Genesis 17:7. 7. Check out the promise. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is a generational promise. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So now we're going to get started. Exodus chapter 1, which some of you read. Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to be and we're going to look at verses 8 through 17 today. We are introducing this story, we are looking at some primary themes, and then we get into, we're going to get into some really good stuff today, but we're going to get into some really, really good stuff in the next two or three weeks. Okay, so this is what the scripture says, Exodus 1, verses 8 through 17. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to the people, look, the Israelites are more numerous and powerful Then we, come let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, this is punishment, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Rameses, for Pharaoh, But the more they were oppressed, and this is the Christian story, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women, say to them on their birth stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And they let the boys live. So initially what we're reading here is a desire to rid Egypt of the Jewish people. Pharaoh is not simply seeking to destroy an ethnicity, but he is also seeking to destroy a way of life. A couple of points to introduce this, introduce this series that you need to understand, not just about Exodus, where we're going to be, And not just about this journey out of Egypt, which is even more specifically where we're going to be, but two things that you need to recognize about Scripture as a whole. All right, The first is this. Oppression, such as what we see in Exodus, is a systematic and spiritual theme throughout Scripture. Now, there are a lot of churches that aren't going to talk about this. All right, they're going to completely gloss over it. They're not going to look at it. In fact, they don't like the word oppression, even though it's a very common Old Testament word and also recognized in the New Testament fairly often. Now, this oppression is eventually going to lead to liberation. All right, This is what we see in the Exodus story, and this is most definitely what we see in the story of The cross, looking back at verses 13 and 14, the Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard work, mortar and brick in every field and labor. Darkness, misery, sorrow, difficulty, hopelessness, slavery, Every single day of their lives, and we will tie this to the condition of sinners. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. All right, so today we're just simply recognizing some themes. We, as sinners, are a product of deep oppression. When you look at our condition apart from God, we don't know up from down or left from right. It is the condition that we are actually born into. Now, whenever we experience the saving grace of God, and I know if you accepted Christ whenever you were five years old or six years old, this kind of thinking might be a little bit more difficult to recollect in this way. But if you accepted Christ whenever you were a little bit older and you truly understand your darkness... You truly understand the waywardness of your ways. You truly understand that despite your best efforts to try to be good and to try to do the right thing, you fall short every single time. It is this oppression about ourselves that we must recognize. And then whenever we accept Christ, we recognize that that kind of pressure was never supposed to be on our shoulders to begin with. We were never supposed to carry those things. In fact, the only thing we were ever intended to carry was a cross. The only thing we were ever intended to carry was the grace and the mercy of God. Now, when you recognize that form of oppression, and you're able to look at yourself as being here at one stage of your life, and now you are here in the newness of life, in a new creation, what this does is it makes the oppression of other people relatable. It means that whenever you look at that person that is struggling with a particular sin, you are not apt to judge, as so many people, religious people do, because you recognize that you have been in the muck and the mire of sin yourself, and at any moment in time, on your high seat, you can fall again. So we start to recognize these things and we identify not only with people that are spiritually oppressed, but also people who are socially and materially oppressed. And we see this all over the Bible. The story of the mother that is struggling should matter to us. Systematic poverty should matter to us. To see the vulnerable go without, if that's a kid or an adult without socks, should matter to us. And I'm saying this today, and I'm placing emphasis on this, not only because it's the heart of Exodus, but because many ministries and many churches and many denominations completely ignore this. Concern for the poor, the broken, the estranged is more of an add-on that maybe we can do at the end of the day, instead of a central part of the story. Now, we see this the clearest in the Bible, I believe, in the Exodus and in the cross. And I have no idea why this is the case. I'll never understand it. But God is attracted to things that are broken. I don't know why. I don't know why he doesn't look at us when we're in our best place. But he doesn't, or at least it's us in our brokenness that recognizes him. All right, so not only do we come from this kind of oppression, but Yahweh, or God, gives Moses an entire law in this that then trickles into Leviticus that has to do with this kind of oppression, It's the reason that we read of a jubilee year in the seventh year when all debts were canceled. It's the reason that we read about gleaning, gleaning meaning that the crops that the farmers are not using are supposed to be left for the poor. It's the reason that we see these things. Oppression is not good, all right? We could agree with that. 400 years of oppression is horrible, but there is an outcome that we have to pay attention to, that is always connected to oppression. Through this story, through this slavery, through this misery, through this, you know, after several generations, you start to give up. After several generations of this, which, which I don't think we've ever experienced because we don't come from, from a family history of 400 years of oppression, you start to give up. But please hear this because this is where it all is. Oppression, in the biblical narrative, is always a catalyst for promise. There is always something that follows oppression. And this is where it gets good, okay? We see this in Job. Speaking of Egypt, we see this in Joseph. We see this in the major and the minor prophets. And we definitely see this in a boy named Moses that was supposed to be drowned simply because of of his ethnicity, just another Hebrew boy, just another Hebrew boy that was supposed to be killed. You're going to love this part right here. I'm going to skip ahead. This is Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus 225. I love the way this is illustrated in the next chapter, and we're probably going to get to this, this next time. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them, all right? Let's go straight to the Hebrew, all right? Hebrew is always shorter. It's always right to the point. You're going to love this. So let me read this again. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them, all right? Consider your life right now, wherever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're struggling with, whatever kind of mental affliction you're going through, your marriage is about to fall apart. You're struggling because your kids are absolutely driving you crazy. You're super anxious over this COVID-19 thing. You're concerned about our president because of what's going on with him now having this illness. All of these things that are going on, please understand this. We're talking about the Israelites, but I want you to direct this to your life. This is what this verse is saying. God saw the Israelites. God knew. That's the literal translation. God saw the Israelites. God knew. Now, let's take this to our lives. And let's really place this in the context of where we are. God sees the guilt and the shame and the fear and the struggle and the doubt and the worry And all of the complexities that you deal with every single day. And he knows. He knows. Doesn't matter what you're going through. He knows your tomorrow. He knows the breakdown that is going to take place six weeks from now. He knows the job that you are about to lose whenever you are on cloud nine. He knows the difficulties that you are going to face at that next doctor's visit. He knows the anxiety that you are going to feel whenever you walk out of that school and you're told that your child is not allowed to come back to that school. Whenever a close family member gets this virus and you really start to be full of anxiety, God knows. He knows all of it. Everything about where you are and where you've been. And what do the Israelites do? We're going to see a lot of complaining. We're going to see a lot of arguing. We're going to see a lot of, take me back to slavery. Take me back to where I was because my life was better then. God saw The Israelites, when they didn't even see themselves. And God knew before they ever knew a thing. The Israelites are to be enslaved and exterminated because the Pharaoh senses that there is something powerful about them, there is something prominent about them. They are about to shake the apple cart. And bring about a tremendous amount of frustration. He has no understanding of their God at this point. But he will. Think 10th plague. Think Red Sea. He's about to understand their God. Consider this incredible promise that we see in chapter 6. I will bring you, talking to the Israelites, into this land That I promised, not that I thought about, not that, you know what, if you'll be a good boy, we'll take care of this for you. If you'll read your Bible every single day and be as good as you can, I'm going to take care of you. I promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll give you your possession. I am the Lord. Now, I want to conclude where we are today because, I, you know, I want you to think about something. You know, you can, you can easily take something like this into one ear and out the other. I don't know how possible that is today because, because in the worship today, I really felt the Spirit. I really felt the Spirit moving. When I walked back in, hands up everywhere, everyone singing, tears, eyes closed. The Spirit of God is in this place today. Now, whenever we talk about the promises of God, is this an afterthought? That works for preachers, works for people who have turned everything over. Or are you really willing to step out and trust that? That's the kind of questions that we're asking. So we're going to conclude with this quote that we started with, and I want you to really think about this as we venture with the Hebrew people over the next couple months. Here it is again. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and you know what this can really place you in a position where you're doubting that promise. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. God I can't take any more. I'm at the end. I've done everything I feel like I'm supposed to do, and I have nothing left in me to give. In the desert, in the wilderness, we trust God or we die. You know what death means? It doesn't necessarily mean physical death in this sense. It means that we go to other places. We seek alternative answers and explanations for the things that we are going through in our lives. We find comfort in someone that is not our wife or not our husband. We find comfort in something that we should not be watching. We find comfort in people that will let you down Over and over and over again. In the desert. Some of you know the desert because you've been there. Some of you know the desert because you're there right now. We trust God. Or we die. Promise. 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 Over and over in your head. Trust it. Lean into it. Live into it. Expect it. Every single day. There are three questions that I want to leave you with today, and I want you to consider these as we go through this series. And the first question is this. What is the greatest oppression of my soul right now? What is the greatest oppression of my soul? What is it that's holding me back? What is it that is keeping me from going forward in this promise? Is it a relationship in my life? Is it a particular sin? Is it the people that I'm talking to? Is it the amount of time that I'm spending on my phone? Uh, guilty, you know, as, as charged with that one. What is it in my life? What is the form of oppression? Why, why am I neglecting that time with God? Why is my quiet time turned into a short reading If I'm in the Bible and then back to everything is you, what is it in my life? What is this form of oppression in my life? Number two, am I willing to trust the promises of God in my life? You see, it's one thing to talk about these promises. It's one thing to suggest that it may be important. And it's another thing whenever the rubber completely hits the road and things are really scary... And we have no idea what the outcome could look like that we are willing to step. You know why it looks this way? You know why it seems like nobody else is around? It seems like it's not the rational decision to make. It seems like it could certainly come with problems. That's why they call it desert. That's why they call it wilderness. And in this place, and in these moments, you trust God or you die. And then, number three, can I learn the patience? Because this is the way the promises of God work. Can I learn the patience of God's perfect timing? You know, the Israelites wandered in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. You know how long it should have taken? About 11 days. 40 years and they wonder, uh, 11 days, and they wonder for 40 years, can I learn the patience of God's perfect timing? 400 years is a really long time to be enslaved. You can develop a lot of bitterness in that period of time. You can develop a lot of distrust generationally over four. Hundred years. But guess what? They are not the hated. They are not the despised. They are not the rejected. They are the chosen. As is every dark, miserable, broken, addicted, horrible sinner that calls upon the name of Jesus. With all heads bowed this morning and all eyes closed. You may be in a place, and I, you know, I didn't even really know how I was going to finish this service. But uh, what I want to do is I'm asking, you know, these questions. Is there... Is there something in your soul that is keeping you oppressed? Is there something that is keeping you from the promises of God? Is there something that is keeping you uh, from that perfect timing? And, and, and what I wanna, want us to do today, with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, if you know that you are in that place of deep struggle, if you know that you are in that place of darkness, uh, would you raise your hand just simply so we can recognize that today? Thank you so much for your honesty. Anyone, Thank you very much in the front. Anyone else? Thank you in the back. I recognize those hands that are up. I'm asking you again, what is the oppression that you are dealing with today? Father, we lift you up and we thank you so much. We ask God that you watch over our church, that you keep us safe, that you protect us. But Father, more than anything, we recognize the difficulty and the struggle and the realness of our sin But Father, help us not to beat ourselves down in our own brokenness, but to trust every single day in the promises that you lay out in Genesis and Exodus, Father, as we get started. And the consistency through the Old Testament narrative that when people mess up, when they erect golden calves, when they worship false idols, when they make Horrible mistakes and try to cover those mistakes up like David. That you are a loving God that continues to call your people back. But what we must do is trust in the depth and the mercy and the consistency of the promises that you have given us. We lift you up and we praise you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.